Lord, thank you for the glorious reality that your blood can make the foulest clean. Your blood availed for me. So many of us here can sing it. And we do ask that we would know something more of the sin reigning, sin canceling power of that blood so that we might walk in the light, have fellowship with one another as the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us. Lord, we're going to be hitting for the next several weeks the weighty topic of sex and human sexuality. We swim in a medium that is awash with sexual deviancy. So, Lord, I ask that though this is going to be a strong mini-series within the series and hard, Lord, that it would ultimately be helpful and make us healthy so that we can enjoy every gift that comes down from the Father of lights above, even the gift of human sexuality, in a way that brings you glory and does us good. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to sexual relations, you don't need much of an introduction when you're talking about sex and sexual relations, but have a little bit of one. When it comes to human sexual relations, there are three viewpoints that are prevalent out there. The first two of these viewpoints are ditches that we want to avoid, and the third viewpoint is a one that we want to heartily embrace. Here's viewpoint number one. As crazy as it sounds, it is a viewpoint, and it goes like this. All sex is bad. Now, you see, when in a few weeks when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, that there were people who were saying that if you became a Christian, you ought not to have intimate relations with your spouse um, because the Lord was returning soon, so we ought not to concern ourselves with that. And today there are some religions that almost describe human uh, sexual relations as a permissible evil rather than a good gift from God. The all sex is bad ditch is a ditch and it needs to be avoided. Now the other ditch goes like this. All sex is good doesn't matter about your married status. It doesn't matter about the age. It doesn't matter about gender. None of that matters. Love is love. And that's what they were saying, that all sex is good. Now, is that the ditch we want to j jump into? So we're going to stay away from the all sex is bad ditch and the all sex is good ditch. Here, here is the third viewpoint that we ought to heartily embrace, namely this. That sex is a glorious gift from a gracious father reserved exclusively for one man in a one-woman relationship, holy covenantal matrimony. That is the viewpoint that as the people of God, though the society around us is going to tell us all kinds of things that we ought to embrace. It is a good gracious gift from a glorious father. I do have to say, as I just prayed, this is going to be a heavy message. So if you are a guest, come back next week, please, if you, even if you walk out today. 
but, but I, I got to be honest with you, next week's going to be kind of heavy too. In fact, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Paul is dealing with this very heavy, weighty topic of human sexuality. But I actually would like you to stay and would like you to come back because while it's not only heavy, it's also helpful. It can also make us healthy no matter what our past may, may be. You see, 21st century America is just as sexually promiscuous, sexually deviant, sexually charged as first century Corinth was. And that's why yesterday's text is fresher than today's newsprint. And I don't think you need me to give you many examples of that, do you? To make the point that we're just as sexualized as first century Corinth. I mean, I could give you stories. I could give you statistics. I could quote lines from shows, lines from songs, right? I could quote um, movies, all kinds of music. I could talk about skyrocketing abortion statistics. I could talk to you about the, a, a huge um, situation of many kids born to uh, in a single family. I could tell you about sex trafficking. I could talk to you about sex assault and how that is going up. I could talk to you about pride festivals and all that's associated. I don't think you need to give me any specific example. Would you agree that we live in a super sexualized, super sexually deviant culture all around us? And sometimes we entertain ourselves with that stuff, quite frankly. This section launching three chapters on human sexuality, Paul begins rather unflinchingly. If you remember the last verse from last week's text, chapter 4, Paul says, shall I come to you with a rod or shall I come to you with love in a spirit of gentleness? Well, guess what he's coming with? He's coming with the whip. He's coming with the rod. He's coming with a call to church discipline. Now, to cut to the chase, here was the situation. He says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He's saying, I'm getting these reports that you all are wiling out sexually. And the word translated sexual immorality is the word pornea. Does that sound familiar? It's sort of a junk drawer term that, that kind of gathers in all forms of sexual deviancy, including fornication, which is simply sex outside of marriage, including homosexuality, including pornography. It's a junk drawer term. Pornea is for all kinds of deviant sexuality, including pornography itself. But we are not left to guess here what the particular flavor of sexual deviancy that was going on. Latter part of verse 1, he says, for a man has his father's wife. A dude was sleeping with his stepmom. And what is interesting to know um, is, is this. As twisted as the Corinthian chaos and sexuality was, as, as, as twisted as Corinth was, I mean, they, they basically tolerated anything and everything, stuff that would just 
rise a, a stream of righteous rage and indignation in you. What they did to people, what they did to minors, terrible. Even in that Corinthian chaos, that particular flavor of sexual deviancy was considered a vice, a taboo. You don't do that. You don't touch that. You can read these verses. Middle part of verse 5, he says, it's a kind that is not even tolerated among who? Among pagans. In other words, their sexual deviancy that was going on was even catching the attention of the surrounding pagan culture. It was that bad. And Paul's beef then, this sets up the context for what he's going to share, is not simply with that guy who's sleeping with his stepmom. Where's Paul's ultimate beef with? The church itself. Why? Read on. And he says, you are arrogant. You're an arrogant bunch. Basically, what was going on, you read between the lines and just read it plain be that the church unbelievably not only tolerated that that guy was sleeping with a stepmom, they actually boasted in it. We're progressive. We're not like that church down the street. We believe love is love. I can just see the sign on their church. I can just see the flag over their church. We are nicer than other Christians, and we are quite cool with this. They were arrogant. They were arrogant, he says. You are arrogant about this. He, he says, instead, what should you be doing? You ought to be mourning. You ought to be weeping. You ought to be repenting. You ought to be torn up about this matter. Nope, nope, nope. You're boasting in this. You're arrogant in how open-minded and progressive you are. And he goes on to say then, let him who has done this be what from among you? Be removed from among you. They're saying, put that guy out. Now listen, just as God through Moses in the Old Testament was calling the people of God of the Old Testament, Israel, to purge themselves of uncleanliness, God now through the apostle Paul is calling the church to cleanse itself and herself of sexual sin, of sexual immorality. So the, the title of this message comes right out of the last verse in this section, verse 13, where it says, purge the evil person among you. This is a call, here's the title, to purge the church. Now, I did say this is going to be a weighty message, right? That title itself is weighty. It comes right from the text itself. Now, what the apostle is going to give us is too wise as to why we ought to purge the church followed in closing by a couple of caveats lest we become cultic about this matter. Y'all with me? Even though we're outside, you can still talk to me, all right? So talk to me, especially if a message like this. I feel like I'm standing on an island alone, quite frankly. Why, number one, I'll summarize this way from verses three through five, for the good of the offender. Are y'all with me? For the good of the person who's wiling out in sexual sin. For the good, he says, of that person. He says, I have already, verse 3, pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
So are Christians to judge or not judge? What's up with this? What? Well, what do you think? We are to judge, however, righteously according to God's word, unhypocritically. In other words, I shouldn't be judging as I got a log or a telephone pole protruding out of my left eyeball. But we are called to be discerning. And you don't need no Greek to get what Paul was judging. He said, that is wrong. You are sleeping with your stepmother. She may be your step, but she's also your mother. What is more, your dad is married to her, so there's cheating going on. So listen, I have pronounced judgment. This is just flat out wrong. Would anybody say that it's cool for a guy to sleep with a, with a married woman, let alone a stepmom? So he says, we have pronounced judgment. And then he says in verse 5, verses 4 and 5, summarizes this with this phrase, verse 5, you are, when you, when you come together, when you're assembled in the name, just like we're assembled right here, you are to deliver this man to Satan. You are to put this man out. I did say this was heavy, right? He says you are to put this man out. Now, this would take us to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is the classic passage on what is called church discipline. So it wasn't just saying put him out. There is a process to run. And by the way, I'll say this about church discipline. Church discipline is typically not for one offense. I mean, there could be some like an abuse thing like that, you know, but typically it's not for one offense. Church discipline is for a pattern of unrepented sin. In other words, I'm going to confess Christ, but I'm going to live any old way I want. And people come to you and come to you. And here's how we come to people. Jesus taught in Matthew 18 that if your brother sins, your sister sins, what ought you to do? Text the elders? Go to them. And don't be legalistic, not just one time. Like, go a few times, right? Just you and you and them. Say, hey, man, you just look like you're stepping out on the side. This is not consistent with the gospel. Can we talk about this? Go a couple of times. And if they don't, then what ought you to do? Take two or three with you per Matthew 18. Is that just one and done? No, do it a few times, man. You're, you're, you're assuming and seeking the best. And then if they don't listen to the appeal by two or three witnesses, then you do what? He says in Matthew 18, 17. Tell it to who? The church. You tell the church. The elders are certainly part of that process as, as, as church under shepherds and leaders, but you're telling it to the church via the elders. Now, you don't give all the detail, right? You give just enough just to kind of, because you're not seeking the humiliation, you're seeking the restoration. And I like to call it church pursuit rather than church discipline, because what we're then calling the church to do is to get after that person. And if you're not relationally proximate to them, if you're not good friends, it probably won't help for you to reach out, but you can at least pray. But if you already do have a relationship with them, then you can reach out and appeal to them. Finally, according to Matthew 18, 17, B, if they don't listen to a period of church pursuit, then what are you to do? What Paul is talking about right here, you, 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 you put them out. doesn't mean they can't come, but you're no longer recognizing their confession of faith as real. You're no longer, um, you're no longer receiving them as a, as, as a church member. Now, I will tell you, that even now, faces and names come to mind. 
I was just just kind of reflecting on that this week. Uh, Restore Church over eight years. Um, we've had to do that on a few occasions. Do we like doing that? Why do we do that? Because we love them, and because we love God. I, I can think of one situation, total generic. Um, somebody who was married was having an affair with somebody else, and they would not repent. It's heartbreaking. I can think of somebody who was not married who was sleeping around. And, and let me say this. If you're not married to the person, even if that's your steady, that is still sleeping around because you're sleeping around God's plan for sexuality, which is in holy covenantal marriage. We had somebody like that who would not turn. There was much that went in. It wasn't a one and done, but finally we had to do what the Scripture says based on their position and response of not repenting. And then I can think of somebody else who um, gave themselves into um, same-sex uh, relationship. Now listen, there is no doubt that the fall has pressed its fingerprints on all of us in different ways. So to have that inclination is, and not to act upon it, is not in sin. Like, people could say, I have an inclination to be an adulterer. Well, yeah, you might have that inclination, but you just can't act on it, right? And this is a person in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture on human sexuality said, I'm going to give myself to that lifestyle. And we had no, but no choice based on Scripture to respond that way. Now, here's the heartbreaking thing. All three of the people that I just mentioned no longer confess Christ. Unrestrained sexuality led them away from trusting in the Savior. Showing, at least at this point, that they might have had the jersey on from the uniform shop for a minute, but they aren't really on the team. They had never really been bought with the price. And that's why he says in verse 3, I'm sorry, end of verse 5, you're to do this so that this person may be saved. Now remember, the reason we're doing that is for the good of who, first of all? For the good of the person, for the good of the offender. And he says so that they may be saved. So let me break down this verse. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And you read that, you're like, what? What do you mean, deliver this person to Satan? What is that all about? Well, it's like this. Let me try and break this down best I know how, simple as I can. When someone is giving themselves to any kind of sin without repentance, sexual sin included, they are, at least at that mo moment, showing that their Lord is sin, right? Self and Satan. And against the wisdom of counsel saying you ought not to go that way, it's going to hurt you. It's going to tarnish the glory of God. You're confessing Jesus. Against such sound, passionate counsel, when someone says, I want it, at some point you say, then have at it. And the hope is that as they give themselves head over heels to their sin, that they will come to see that the sin they think is so sweet is actually the bitterest thing they've ever tasted. Because now you're giving that person over to Satan, and God, who's over everything and everyone, including demons, including the highest-ranking demon of all, Satan, God will use Satan like a parasite. You know that? Just to let him eat at them, hoping that ultimately they will come to their senses and say, what in the world am I doing? 
Why am I turning from my wife? Why am I turning from my husband? Why am I going this direction? Why am I forsaking all of this? Most of all, how could I do this to Jesus, who I believe bought me with a price? And so the hope is, through that process, quite frankly, they will get so miserable, they will turn back to Jesus. And they will ultimately show, through all of that pain, coming to a position of true repentance, that though they did step out into the slop, they really do belong to the king. And he was able to bring them back in. That was done, I say to you, number one, for the good of the offender. Are y'all with me? Y'all with me? Okay, second reason right here. For the good of the church. For the good of the church. That's found in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Now, again, what was that boasting about? What was that church boasting in? How tolerant they were, right? We're so tolerant. We're not like that church down the street. We just believe love is love. So we're not, you know, listen, if they're happy, we should be happy. Paul says, you're boasting in that. You ought not to be. And he goes on to say, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What in the world is that about? Leaven is also yeast. And when yeast does its thing, it spreads through that lump of dough. And what he's saying is that kind of uh, idolatry of tolerance that goes against the word of God, if it is left unchecked, it will spread like leaven through the church and spurn all kinds of rebellious, harmful, family-destroying, God-hating behaviors. You ever heard the thing about a rotten apple? Little science behind that. I can't remember the name of the gas, but an apple, as it is rotting, emits a certain gas. When it's in a bushel of other apples, the presence of that apple actually draws out the gas quicker causing rotting in other apples than if it wasn't around. So if you don't get that rotten apple out of there and say, you know, there's, there's some rotten living going on, there's some rotten thinking going on, it could then leaven the rest of the church. So what does he say in verse 7? He says unequivocally, this is what he says, cleanse out what? Get, deal with that. Cleanse out the old leaven. Y'all need to deal with that. That is what he's saying in crystal clear fashion as you really are in leaven. And then seemingly out of nowhere, and this is really cool, he says, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. He goes on to say in verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival. You ought to ask yourself, what in the world does Passover have to do with this, right? This seems like it's coming out of left field. What are you you doing, bro? Why is that there? Well, Passover was the marquee deliverance, right, of the Old Testament people of God of Israel. Israel was under 400 years, four straight centuries of Egyptian oppression and brutality. And maybe you know that story, but they were treated horrifically. God had promised through Moses and others that he was going to deliver them. Did God do that right away? 
No, it took about four centuries. So if you're waiting for deliverance, just be patient, okay? We all struggle and we're looking for breakthroughs. God has his own calendar, right? But when it came, man, it came fast. It came so fast that they had to get out of Dodge before the bread could rise. Do you remember that? They had to leave with unleavened bread. And to this very day, when a Jewish family is celebrating Passover, on the eve of Passover, they sweep their house with a wooden spoon and with a feather and a paper bag to ceremonially get rid of all the yeast or leaven in the household to show that they remember that God delivered them. Now, that marquee deliverance of the Old Testament Passover which is still celebrated today, was accomplished by the ultimate and final 10th plague. Does anybody remember what that plague was? The death of the firstborn. God said that he would sweep over the land and that every firstborn would be killed. And sometimes people who have a hard time with the Bible say, well, I mean, how could God do that? How could God keep on giving you breath, man? God gave you breath, right? The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. The Lord is the one. Have you thanked him for the very breath that he's given you right now? He said, as judgment to rescue his people, they would sweep through the land and there would be the death of the firstborn. But he also said this. He said, I want you to take a Passover, I want you to take a, a lamb from your flock, a perfect lamb, spotless lamb, lamb without spot or blemish, right? I want you to slaughter it. Now imagine that, slaughtering an animal you've had around your house. And then I want you to smear the blood on the, on the doorpost of the house. And when I pass over the land, I will not strike down your firstborn because I see blood on your post. And exactly, exactly that way is how it happened. But now, several hundred years later, a man who was probably about 5'10", 5 5'11", 5 probably brown eyes, brown skin, dark hair, is baptizing in the wilderness a bunch of people coming to him who look just like him almost. But in that crowd, he points to one and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the ultimate Passover Lamb. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the cults will say that means there was a time he never existed. No, it just means he's the preeminent one of creation who stepped out of eternity to become part of a cre the creation while still the creator. And God did not spare his firstborn so that he might spare all who would turn to him in repentant, genuine faith. And his blood, the blood of the firstborn of the ages, was not just smeared on a doorpost. Man, it was shed on a cross for the ultimate marquee deliverance of the ages. And the scripture tells us that everyone, everyone who repents of their sin and places their faith in the crucified, resurrected Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, when that happens, their sins in that point of time are taken away. This is the gospel, Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. This is the song of the ages, Revelation 5-9. Right now, if we had supersonic ears, we could hear them singing, 
For you are worthy to be praised. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you have ransomed people from every nation and tribe and kindred and tongue. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ came that you might be spared and you might be saved. This is the truth of the gospel. It's glorious. And what is more, his blood has not only saved us, his blood has cleansed us. Guilt, shame, regret, sexual stuff included that you have on your resume. Bible says if you're in Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ has washed that away. Is God a liar or not? He is not a liar. He is not a liar. And that's why one of the great passages, one of the great doxologies you ought to memorize, Revelation 1.5, it says, To him who has washed us from our sins in his blood. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. What can make the foulest clean his blood avail for me? Not only has his blood saved us, not only has his blood cleansed us, his blood breaks that power of sin. It breaks the power of sin. Now, we didn't always feel that, right? We don't always believe that. That's why we come back to that. He writes, the, uh, the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, don't you know that you were ransomed from your old way of thinking and living, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. And I just want to say, if you have never been saved, he would save you right now. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He offers himself to you, and the proof is in the pierced hands and the pierced side and the pierced feet and the fact that he is risen. And if you feel someone tapping on your sternum right now, on your soul, that's the Holy Spirit saying to you, come home. What are you waiting for? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, verses 7 and 8, Paul is telling them to deal with that sin in their camp, right? Both individually and corporately as a church. He says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and with truth. It's not enough not just for us personally, to not commit sexual sin. He is saying we also must not tolerate it, right? No matter how we couch it, he calls it malice, doesn't he? Which ain't a good word. That's bad. He calls it malice and evil, not sincerity of faith. And, and failure to do this destroys lives. And destroys churches. Do you know you have entire denominations now that are arrogant and are puffed up and boast in how inclusive they are sexually? Now, we ought to be massively inclusive. Anybody ought to come. And I'm going to be addressing that as I close in just a moment. 
but we got to be clear what the gospel calls us to, right? We are not to reinvent. We are simply to exposit what has been once delivered unto the saints, the unchangeable word of God. He's saying just this, become what you are. As you are, he says, really, unleavened bread. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. And family, I'm just, I just want to say in an age where tolerance is the all-encompassing ideal, if you bring moral clarity into a time of moral confusion, sometimes people will say that's hatred. When, in fact, it's just truth. We're to do it in love, but it's truth. And I just want to say, any believer here, any believer here, is there any sin you need to confess? Any sin anybody here needs to confess. The only sin God will not forgive is the sin you're not willing to forsake. The sin you're not willing to repent of. Uh, listen, you can't lose your salvation if you really have it. But you can live in a miserable place called the wilderness. And if you're living in sin, and you're completely cool with it in your quieter, more candid moments... You're an imposter because the Holy Spirit won't let you live that way because that's not who you are anymore. Now, I, I do want to say to a word to anybody who maybe really is fighting sexual sin. They really are. It's their struggle. They wake up first thing in the morning thinking about it. They go to bed thinking about it. It's a struggle. But you are struggling, and that's the good thing. You're struggling against it. You're repenting. You're fighting hard. And we just want to say we love you. And we're going to walk patiently with you. We really will. We will walk patiently, patiently with you every painful step of the journey. And man, it can be quite painful. But God is for you. And we are for you. And if you develop the pattern over your life, then though you get forgiveness instantly, sometimes we need to learn what it is to appropriate the power of the gospel to walk in newness of life. We'll walk with you. Now, back to the larger context, I need to close. He says, you need to put out the serially, habitually, unrepentant, sexually immoral people. Why? For the good of the person and for the good of the church and not be tarnished. Now, I, I do have to hit this quickly. Lest we don't have the balance of this text and we act like a cult. Okay? So there's two caveats. Caveat one, don't associate with people who confess Jesus as their Lord and yet live in habitual unrepentance of sin. That comes right out of verse 9. Right out of verse 9. I wrote you to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Drop down to verse 11. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name. Bears the name. You see that right there? So what we're talking about is this is to be applied to people who confess Christ and don't live habitually consistent with it. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say is, this is also after running the church pursuit process, right? The church discipline process. And when it happens, it's not shunning. You ever heard of shunning? I ain't going to talk to you. It's not like, I'm passing you on the sidewalk. Oh, we had to put you out. I'm too good for you. We're not talking about that at all, right? We're not talking about that. Rather, the idea is simply this. We are not going to have everyday fellowship together as if everything is cool and telling you're, until you're willing to address the slop in your life. It's, it's that simple. 
Thistleton reminds us in his commentary that the word is a compound mixed together. We are not to mix together with people who confess Christ, yet are, who are living in unrestrained sin in such a way that he says it lacks discretion and it causes people who aren't Christians to say, oh, I guess Christians are fine with you living only the way you want as long as you can say Jesus is Lord. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about. Now he says, not even to eat with one. Verse 11. That doesn't mean not sitting down to have a meal and talk about getting right with God. What he's talking about is the Lord's Supper. We are going to hold the Lord's Supper from you. You can't have this because you're not walking with the Lord. So if somebody who's, who's had to be dealt with in this such a way, and they say, hey, do you want to go golfing? What's the answer? The answer is no, but I will do anything and meet you anywhere if you want to talk about you getting right with God. And if we need to do that over 18 holes, I can do that, but we are going to talk about that. Does that make sense? Failure to do this, in the words of Paul Barnett, do this. By remaining as if everything is just okay, the offender is under no moral or spiritual pressure to repent, so we're not doing good to them. And number two, the evil... Leaven will, in time, corrupt the whole community. It won't be good for the church. Now, this does not apply to non-Christians. This does not apply to non-Christians. Let me show you this. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Okay? He says, for what I ha what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Verse 12. For it is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, he's simply saying is, this doesn't apply to non-Christians, right? Because they don't need restoration. What do they need? They need salvation. Lost going to do lost, right? The guys on my ball team are going to talk the way they do, and they're going to walk the way they do, the ones that don't know the Lord, because they don't know the Lord. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the idea, of course. And that's, in fact, that's why Christians need to be around people like that, right? Who are truly filled with the Spirit, seeking by the power of the Spirit to walk out their faith however imperfectly so that they can show what a life impacted by Christ looks like. Now, what he's calling then is to flip the script. Typically, we judge outsiders, the church does, and we tolerate sin inside. He says flip the script. We need to judge ourselves inside. The judgment begins in the house of God. And there's toleration in the sense of I want to be around people. I'm going to be around people just so I can get close to these guys and, like, share as we build a relationship. Listen, you are, you are already condemned, the Bible says, but Jesus came into the world that you might have life and have life more abundantly. So this is, he closes with a, a clear call to take action on the unrepentant sinner. He says, do what? Purge the evil person from among you. I know this is the longest online hybrid service we had. I am so sorry, but I didn't want to leave out these caveats. So please give me grace, okay? I'll try to tighten it up next week, all right? Why don't churches do that? Or why do we do this so reluctantly? And I would say this, because we think too, way too much of what the world thinks about us and way too little of what God thinks about us. Way too much of what the world, what are they going to say? They're going to think we're one of those, you know. And, oh, God didn't really mean that. After all, God is love. A church that is not willing to deal with unre unrepentant sin is an unrepentant church. 
That's not just sexual sin. That's all of our stuff, right? So let us, with joy and positivity, hold up that third viewpoint. That sex is a gracious gift from a gracious father reserved exclusively for one man, one woman, holy covenantal marriage. We'll be talking about that and what that means for us as married and singles and all the rest as we go through this series. This is the Word of God. Amen.